Morning, Whitefields. It's good to be with you. I always look forward to Sunday mornings. I always look forward to studying the Word with you. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 25 today, so let's go ahead and bow our heads and pray as we get into God's Word. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. Lord, we thank you that is steadfast, that is everlasting. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and that your love is stronger than death, Lord. Your love is stronger than sin. Your love is stronger than our folly and our mistakes. And Lord, thank you that you reach out to us and you love us. Lord, that you loved us first and that you continually love us steadfastly. Lord, thank you that your love gives life to us. And Lord, this morning we ask that we would just be filled with your love, with your life, with a vision of you again as we see you in the scriptures, we see your heart, and we see the kind of God that you are. Lord, let us be filled up this morning, Lord, with a greater appreciation for the gospel, with a greater appreciation for your love and your grace, and Lord, we pray that it would transform our lives. And we pray that in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen. Amen. So we are studying through the book of Genesis on Sunday mornings. And as we've been doing that, what we've seen is that the Bible is really made up of a lot of little stories. But each of these little stories serves to tell one ultimate story, right? One grand story, and that's the story of Jesus Christ. The story of God's work to put an end to sin, to judge evil, to seek and to save that which has been lost to sin. And the book of Genesis is important because it gives us the background. It gives us the foundation that we need to understand who Jesus is, why he came, and what it is that he accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. So the book of Genesis really sets the stage for us by defining the language and the concepts that we need to understand the gospel, right? It defines or lays out for us all these concepts like sin, holiness, covenant, sacrifice, uh, which are the foundation of the gospel. You go on and on. So many basic ideas first found here in Genesis laid out for us. Without an understanding of these, we cannot appreciate the gospel. So for many weeks now, we have been studying the life of Abraham and his wife Sarah and their dysfunctional family, right? The book of Genesis starts out with a global perspective and then it zooms in and talks about this one dysfunctional family of Abraham. In fact, um, one thing you'll notice if you, you know, scan through your Bible is this, that pretty much all the families in the Bible are dysfunctional, okay? And uh, in fact, I would even challenge you to look in your Bible and find one that's not dysfunctional. Because, uh, you know, even if you do find one that looks pretty good, like, hey, these guys don't look that bad, well, that's because you don't know anything about them, right? You just say, well, that guy had a kid, the end. You know, well, they weren't that dysfunctional. That's because we don't know about them. I'm sure if we did know about them, we'd see that they were dysfunctional too, right? Uh, And many of us can relate to that. I don't know about you, but I can relate to that. I feel right at home reading the Bible because... You know, we're, we come from dysfunctional families. That's the result of sin is dysfunction, right? We look at the Bible and we say, hey, that kind of reminds me of my family, you know? And hey, well, God loved them and God befriended them and he forgave them and, and he even used them for his purposes. Well, then I guess that God can love me too and I guess he can be gracious to me. And praise the Lord, that's awesome. That gives me hope. Today in our story... We're going to look at the next generation of Abraham's family, and what we see is that they're pretty dysfunctional too. They're dysfunctional in a different way, 
but it's still not good, right? And as we look at this dysfunctional family on the pages of God's word, we are asking God to speak into our lives, into our dysfunctional behaviors, into our dysfunctional relationships, that we might be changed and transformed and healed and set free, that we might walk in newness of life, that we might walk in the way everlasting and in fullness of life. So today's message is titled, Sons and Brothers. And, and in this chapter, what we see is two sets of sons and brothers, Isaac and Ishmael, and Jacob and Esau. And what we see, we're going to look at some episodes from their lives, and we're going to see that they are actually part of a bigger theme of sons and brothers that runs throughout the Bible. If you have your Bible with you, follow along in Genesis chapter 25. Last week, what we saw is that after 60 plus years of marriage, Sarah died. And uh, what we see in this chapter is that after the death of Sarah, Abraham gets remarried and he has some other children. But what's interesting to note is in verse 5, it says this, that Isaac received all of the inheritance. You remember that Isaac was the son of the promise. He was counted as the firstborn, even though he wasn't the firstborn uh, by order of birth. You remember that uh, Ishmael was actually also the son of Abraham. He was technically older than Isaac, but yet Isaac receives the inheritance. He's counted as the firstborn. He gets the birthright. He becomes the head of the family. He becomes the heir of the promise that God made to Abraham to make a great nation out of whom the Messiah will come. You know, even though, like I said, Isaac wasn't technically the oldest son of Abraham, Ishmael was technically the oldest son. Isaac is the the one whom God chose before either of them were ever born to be the heir of the promise and the covenant that God made to Abraham. The one who will carry on the family legacy of knowing God and walking with God. And and there's a theme that we're going to see repeated in this chapter in regard to Jacob and Esau and something that we see as a theme that runs throughout the Bible. And that is... especially emphasized in regard to sons and brothers. But it's also true of people in general, and that is this, that God chooses the younger over the older, the weak over the strong, the foolish over the wise, the last over the first. And that's because man looks at the outward things, but God looks at the heart. That's what he cares about. He has a totally different set of values than that which is common and accepted to this world. Uh, He functions outside of the box, right? He doesn't work according to our rules or our expectations. That's what it means that he's sovereign. And so after many years of walking with God, Abraham dies. And it says in verse 8 that he died in a good old age, a man full of years. This is a picture of contentment and death. He, he had lived a full life and he passes on peacefully from this world into the presence of the Lord. He's a man who lived his entire life on earth with an awareness that this world was not his home. That he was just passing through. That while he was here, he had a calling. He had a mission to fulfill. He was part of the bigger picture of what God wanted to accomplish. And he did that. But he knew the whole time that the place that he truly longed for in his heart of hearts was not here but is in the presence of the Lord. And so he has total peace and contentment moving on to that next place. So after Abraham's death, we see that Isaac and Ishmael come together again and they bury their dad. Now Isaac and Ishmael, if you remember the story, they're brothers, but they've been estranged for many years. 
Uh, Ishmael was Abraham's son from a relationship that he should have never had with a woman who was not his wife. Isaac was Abraham's son from his wife, Sarah. And they lived under the same roof for a few years. But Ishmael and his mom, if you remember the story a few chapters back, they were sent away from home when Ishmael was a teenager in part because Ishmael was cruel. He acted cruelly and meanly towards um, Isaac, who was just a little boy at the time. So these two probably haven't met in years. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you have family relations that are the same. People who aren't talking, haven't met in years, they're estranged. They don't get together for birthday parties. They don't have Christmas together. They don't have Thanksgiving. They don't call each other on the phone. They're estranged. You can imagine there's bitterness. There's hurt that goes between these people. Ishmael's hurt and bitter because, you know, he was growing up with his dad. And then this other kid comes along and takes away the inheritance and gets all the attention. Ishmael gets nothing and he gets kicked out of the house, right? You can imagine Isaac's bitter at Ishmael because Ishmael was cruel to him and, and abused him, so to say, you know, when he was a little boy. So these, these brothers have been estranged from each other for a long time. There's a lot of, you know, pain and bitterness and tension between them. But the one thing that brings them together is the death of their father. And they come together at Machpelah to this gravesite that Abraham had purchased for his family. And they bury their dad and they honor him. And in this story, we see an important principle, which I think is very practical for for all of us. And that is this. um, And I have it up on the screen here. In order for reconciliation to take place, someone's got to die. Okay? In order for reconciliation to take place, someone's got to die. You see, like Isaac and Ishmael, in our relationships, whether it's with a family member that you haven't talked to in years, or a friend who betrayed you, or a spouse who has hurt you, if there's ever going to be reconciliation, somebody's got to die. The ultimate example of this, of course, is found with our Heavenly Father, right? Because of our sin, we were estranged from God. We were separated and estranged from the Holy God who created us. The 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says this, All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us with the message of reconciliation. In other words, here's the deal. God set the precedent for us. He set the model for reconciliation. We were estranged from him because of sin. And, and really, if you think about even this situation, sin is always the root cause of broken relationships and hurt and pain. So someone has sinned against somebody else. Oftentimes, both parties have sinned against each other and both hurt each other. But look at how God the Father deals with this estranged relationship that he had with us. He takes the lead. And what does he do? He chooses, I will be the one to die. Because reconciliation can't take place unless somebody dies. He says, I will be the one to die in order that our relationship might be healed and that it might be restored and reconciled. So God takes the initiative. That's the precedent that's been given. That's the example we have to follow about how important it is to be a peacemaker, to be a reconciler, to be uh, one who brings together broken relationships. You, you, the point is that we should do whatever we can 
to heal broken relationships. You know, reconciliation is very central to the heart of God. It's so important to God's heart that Jesus even said that if you're at the altar and you're, you know, worshiping the Lord and you remember that you have a relationship that is messed up, then you should leave the altar, go and be reconciled to that person, and then return to worship. That's found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. Interestingly, the word reconcile, think about what that word means. It means to make things right again. The Greek word for reconcile is even more interesting because it's a word which is used of tailors and clothes makers uh, in regard to altering clothes, right? Fixing and repairing clothing. In other words, uh, Jesus is saying that if you have a relationship that's messed up, then you should get it tailored, you should get it fixed. Like a garment that's ripped or torn or doesn't fit right anymore. You don't just throw it in the back of your closet never to be seen again. You don't just, uh, you know, throw it out or discard of it. You get it tailored. You get it fixed. You don't just discard of those relationships. You don't just ignore them. You deal with the matter. You get it reconciled because God cares very much about reconciliation. He's a God who did everything to reconcile us to himself. And he wants us, who are disciples, to be reconciled to each other and reconciled in those relationships we have that are broken. But again, the only way that reconciliation can take place is if somebody dies. If you want to be reconciled to your friend or family member or spouse or neighbor, you're going to have to do what God did in order to fix your broken relationship with him you're going to have to die. You're going to have to die to yourself, die to having your way, die to your rights, and approach that person seeking reconciliation and restoration. Again, in order for reconciliation to happen, someone's got to die. And what Jesus is saying is that person's got to be you. Uh, maybe, maybe you say this, well, why does it have to be me? Why can't it be the other person? Why do I have to be the one who always humbles myself and dies to myself in order to reconcile the relationship? Can it be him this time? Can it be her? You know, that person hurt me. I'm waiting for them to take a step. Why should I humble myself when they're the one who wronged me? Well, remember the precedent. The precedent is God the Father who chose to die himself so that he could be reconciled to you. You see what I'm saying? He wasn't the problem. He wasn't the offender. He wasn't the one who sinned. He wasn't the one who messed up the relationship. Yet he was the one who took the initiative to reconcile it. He was the one who took the initiative and said, I will be the one who dies so that this relationship can be reconciled. He took the first step. He's the model, the precedent that we've been given to follow. But beyond that, let me also say this. There are some very good reasons why it's actually good for you to die to yourself in order to reconcile broken relationships. Some reasons why you should want to die. Let me give those to you. Number one, good reason to die. It pleases the heart of the Father. It pleases the heart of God. When you choose to die to yourself in order to reconcile a broken relationship, that pleases the heart of God. Because why? Because that's his heart. You're sharing in his heart. That's what he did. He died to himself literally in order to be reconciled to you and I. Number two, so not only does it please the heart of the Father, but it defeats the enemy. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27, it says this, 
Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now the NIV translates it in this way. Don't give the devil a foothold. Now I think that's a really interesting picture, especially here in Colorado, right? A lot of people hike, mountain climb, rock climb. So you understand what a foothold is, right? You understand how necessary a foothold is. It's a place where you have an opportunity to hang on, to move up, to keep going. And what God's word says here is this. Don't give Satan a foothold in your life. Don't give him something to hang on to. Don't give him a starting point to get a grip in your life. But if you take away every foothold from Satan, you don't allow him to get a grip in your life, that is how you defeat him practically, right? He's already defeated ultimately. Jesus has already defeated him. But, but this is how you defeat his attempts in your life to steal your joy and cause destruction and pain in your, in your life and in your relationships. So not only does it please the heart of the Father, not only does it uh, defeat the enemy, but thirdly, it kills your flesh. It kills your flesh when you die to yourself. God's word says this, to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And what that means is this. Within, within any person who has come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and been born again, there are two forces at work within them. There are two natures which are vying for power and supremacy. The flesh and the spirit. The old nature and the new nature. The spirit cares about pleasing the Lord, right? The flesh only cares about doing what feels good. People tend to think that if they will indulge their flesh and give in to whatever carnal desires they have, that that will make them happy. But what God says is just the opposite is true. The way to true happiness is not to indulge your flesh, but to put your flesh to death and to live unto God and to walk in the Spirit. And so dying to yourself in order to reconcile a relationship, that is a chance for you to die. It's a chance for you to put your flesh to death. And that hurts, actually. I think you know that. It hurts. But it's, it's not always easy. But ultimately, it leads to a life of peace and more joy and more happiness. Because think about what happens when you hang on to bitterness, right? It's been said, I, I always like this way of looking at it. It's been said that Bitterness is like drinking poison and hoping that the other person will die, right? Who gets hurt in that situation? I remember one time this uh, friend of mine, I hadn't talked to this person in years, and they came up to me and said, I've hated you for like the last two years. And I was like, I, I didn't even know that I've been like in a different country. I, I kind of didn't even think about this. You know what I mean? I had no idea that this person has been bitter at me for two years. This is a long time ago. But um, you know what I'm saying? They, they're drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. In the end, they're the only one who suffers from it. If you hold on to bitterness and resentment, you're only hurting yourself, right? Beyond that, bitterness is something that is infectious, and that's why it's so dangerous, right? Bitterness easily spreads to people around you. But if you choose to die to yourself— and initiate and reconcile a relationship, you're setting yourself free from the poison of bitterness and resentment. And, and you end up happier, freer, and, and more joyful. So as we look at the story of Isaac and Ishmael, we see that in order for reconciliation to take place in our relationships, someone's got to die. And if you take the lead on that, if you choose to be the one who dies to yourself in order for reconciliation to take place, 
You will be blessed. You will be joyful. It, it hurts to put your flesh to death, but it's so worth it. So then our story turns from wrapping up the stories of Abraham and Ishmael. And it turns to focus on Isaac and Rebekah, who are, you know, we're following now the family line that leads us to the Messiah, that leads us to Jesus. So we read that Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. And he wasn't just a late bloomer. He had a really hard time finding a good godly girl in the land of the Canaanites. He actually had to end up going somewhere else so he could find a good godly girl. You know, I meet people sometimes who are like, I'm 23 years old and I'm never going to get married because I'm not married yet, you know. No one is ever going to love me. I'm just going to be an old maid and I'm going to get super old and then if I don't find somebody in the next two weeks, you know, I'm probably never going to get married and I'll just be alone forever. I don't care who I marry actually anymore. I'm just going to marry whoever comes along. I realize now that the path to happiness is lowering my standards because I'm desperate to get married, right? You ever meet these people? Well, here, Isaac got married. I want you to notice this. He, he, it took him a while to find a nice, godly girl. He was 40 years old before he got married. But he didn't compromise. He didn't compromise his standards and his convictions. He didn't lower his standards. He waited. And what happened? The Lord gave him Rebecca. And Rebecca's quite the catch, right? She's hot and holy. That's the whole package, right? And uh, she was worth the wait. Hot and holy. Guys, that's what the Lord wants to give you. And uh, she's worth the wait. She's the whole package. But, uh, but notice this. In the next verse, in, in verse 21, what does it say? It says that Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, Rebecca, because she was barren. Now, Isaac waits all this time to meet a godly woman who he can love, who he can get married to. And then they struggle with infertility. Just like his mom and dad did, actually. You know, this is actually a recurring theme in the Bible that when God wants to do something significant, it doesn't always come easy. It doesn't always come right away. Sometimes you've got to wait for those things. Sometimes you've got to pray for those things and seek the Lord about those things. That's what we see here. But I love this picture of Isaac, right? What is this? This is a picture of a husband praying for his wife, Rebecca. You know, laying hands on her, asking the Lord to bless them with a baby. That kind of thing builds intimacy, right? Husbands, if you want to build intimacy with your wives, ask her what's going on with her and pray for her. That's a whole different level of intimacy. So there's something I want you to notice here. Look down at verse 26. It says that Isaac was 60 years old when his twin sons were born to him. Now, I went to public school, but I'm still able to do this math, right? Uh, that means that Rebecca struggled with infertility for 20 years, Right? 20 years. That's a long time. That's frustrating. That's 20 years of praying for his wife to have a baby. You know, Rosemary and I have had a number of close friends who've struggled with infertility. And uh, we've seen the strain that it puts on their marriage, the stress and the frustration it causes. And we've prayed for people who've been struggling with infertility. And on, on a number of occasions, we've seen the Lord, um, you know, give them a baby and, and answer those prayers on a number of occasions. Uh, Abraham and Sarah, they had to wait 25 years. Now, Rebecca and Isaac have to wait 20 years. But I want you to notice this. How does Isaac respond to his wife's infertility? Does he go out and have a baby with another woman? That's what his dad did, remember? Abraham was a believer, but he also had some sin in his life, right? And that sin in Abraham's life really complicated Isaac's life. 
It complicated everything. It made things hard. But notice this. Isaac doesn't do what his dad did in the same situation. Instead of going out and trying to make something happen in the power of his flesh, Isaac decides that he's going to pray. He had faith that God can give a baby to a barren woman. He's seen that happen. That's the story of his life, actually, right? Uh, And he said, God gave me a promise that he's going to bring about this nation through us and a Messiah. And he kept his promise to my dad. I think he's going to keep his promise to me too. So they pray faithfully for 20 years. That takes a lot of perseverance. But notice, and here's the point I'm making is this. Isaac took note of the sins of his father and he didn't repeat them. Isaac took note of the sins of his father and he didn't repeat them. Isaac says, I love my dad, I respect my dad, but I recognize his shortcomings. I recognize his sins and I don't want to repeat them. I want that to stop here. You know, ironically though, that's good in this chapter. But if you turn the page to chapter 26, here's what happens. Isaac goes out and he does repeat the sin of his father in a different way. He goes on a trip with Rebecca and then he sells her to another man. His dad already did that, like twice, you know? And, uh, and what, what that reminds us of is this. It's so easy. There's such a tendency for us to fall into the same patterns as our parents were in, right? The same sins of our fathers, the sins of our mothers, for us to fall into the same patterns of folly and destructive behavior as our parents, you know, which they learn from their parents. And, and what we must do is to soberly assess our families. And we want to say... I love them, I love my family, I respect them, but I want to analyze this and see what are the things that they did that I don't want to do. What were the shortcomings that made their life hard, that made my life hard because they were doing it? In what ways do I want to be like them and imitate them? In what ways do I not? I hope that my kids will do the same with me. So Isaac, you know, he prays and and, and in due time the Lord answers his prayer and Rebecca conceives. And as the babies are growing in her womb, she feels some kicks, and then she feels some more kicks, and then she feels like an elbow being thrown, you know? And then there's a body slam and a choke hold, and one of those kicks is to the other kid's head. And she's like, what's going on inside of me? There's like a death match going on with these two little babies. You know, it's just proof that we're sinners from the womb. These kids are trying to murder each other before they even get out. They just don't have enough room to maneuver. You know what I mean? Uh, She looks down at her belly, you know, and she sees like a jab, and the other guy's head snaps back. They're just going at it in the womb. So she says, Lord, you know, uh, I've never been pregnant before, but is this normal? I mean, are, are these babies supposed, I know they're supposed to kick, but are they supposed to kick each other, you know? And the Lord speaks to her and says, there are two babies inside of you. They will become two nations, and they're always going to be fighting. The fighting starts now. It's going to continue forever. One of them will be stronger, but the older will serve the younger. From one son will come the Edomites, And the other one will come the nation of Israel, and these two nations will always be at odds with each other. So finally the day comes. Rebecca goes into labor, and she gives birth to twins. You know, the first baby comes out, the firstborn, and they name him Esau because it means hairy, right? He's a hairy little kid. He's covered in this thick red hair. That's kind of hard to imagine, but I got a picture for you uh, so you can kind of imagine what that looks like. This is kind of how I imagine him coming out, you know. So uh, that should help you to visualize the Bible from now on. Now, uh, the next baby comes out, and he's holding on to the heel of his brother, 
Um, so they name him Jacob, which literally means heel grabber, heel snatcher. But this is kind of a play on words, right? It's kind of like when I explain Hungarian, you know, euphemism to people and they're like, uh-huh, yeah, interesting. But anyway, this is actually kind of interesting because it's a play on words and it, it, it means a heel snatcher in Hebrew is like a euphemism for a deceitful person. He's a deceiver. He's a trickster. He's a conniver. He's, a, he's like your typical con man type of guy, right? So in, in, in verse 27, we read this, that when the two boys grow up, they end up being very different, right? Uh, Esau is a skillful hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob is a quiet man dwelling in the tents. What that means is this. Esau is like a man's man, right? He's a dude. He's a free-range boy, you know? He, he's the kind of guy who drives a truck. He listens to Metallica. He wears boots. He goes hunting, he kills it, and he grills it. He's a dude, right? He has hair on his back. So there's uh, Jacob, on the other hand. He's kind of a mama's boy, right? I mean, he's, he's a bit on the effeminate side. His brother goes out hunting. Jacob stays at home with mom. They watch The View together. They do some, uh, do some Richard Simmons workouts. And he wears a lot of pastels. He, uh, he stays at home. He bakes. He listens to boy bands, you know, and dances along. And, you know, he, he lays out his outfits for the week while his brother's out hunting. And so Isaac and Rebecca, what do they do? They play favorites, right? Rebecca's like, well, I have everything in common with this person, so we're friends. And Isaac's like, I like that guy because he's tough and cool, you know. I want to be friends with the cool kid. You know, Isaac's favorite is Esau. They do man stuff together. Uh, Rebecca's favorite is Jacob. They watch The View together. And here's the dysfunction in their family. Their parents uh, played favorites, right? That's not good. I don't know if any of you grew up in homes where there was favoritism, but it's not right. It shouldn't happen. It's very hurtful. Maybe you're like, yeah, you know, now that I think about it, my parents had nicknames for all of us, but they were a little bit different, you know? Like they would say, hey, moron, go tell Sweetie Pie that it's time for dinner. Like, well, we both have nicknames, but mine's not as good. Um, you know, or like they come home, hey, I brought home ice cream for one of you. You know what I mean? Uh, so the point is, don't play favorites with your kids, even if there is one that you connect with more naturally than the others. It's very hurtful. It's very dysfunctional. It causes a lot of problems, as we'll see. Isaac loves Esau. Rebecca loves Jacob. Each parent has their favorite kids. That's a big problem, and the kids know it. So one day Esau comes home from being a dude and working outside, and Jacob's there in the kitchen. He's, you know, listening to the Backstreet Boys, wearing his Kiss the Cook apron, and, and Esau bursts in and says, hey, give me some of that stew. I'm famished. I'm hungry. You know, he's like, you know, like a teenage boy. They're, they come in, they say, I'm gonna die. I need food now. So Jacob comes in, or Jacob says, yeah, I'll give you some stew, but you got to give me something in return. I'll give you all the stew you want, but you got to give me your birthright. And Esau says, hey, I'm going to die soon anyways, so what good is a birthright to me? Go ahead, you can have it. You know, this is interesting. He's not saying that he's so hungry that he's going to die. Because if you can express that in words, you're probably pretty far from actually dying, right? If you can say, I'm going to die, then you know, you, you still got a while to go. So he's, he's not saying that. What he's saying is, hey, I'm going to die someday anyway. So who cares about birthrights? I'm going to die and lose everything and whatever. So 
That's why it says at the end of the chapter that he despised his birthright. He, he didn't need this food to save his life. He just didn't care about his birthright. And you can imagine the scene more like this, right? Esau comes home. He sits down at the kitchen table. He's worn out, for sure. And he tells his brother, hey, can I have some of that stew? Jacob says, sure, but you've got to give me your birthright. Esau says, birthright? What do I care about birthrights? You dumb birthright. Who cares? Go ahead. You can have it. Just give me some lunch. So Esau sells his birthright to Jacob. Now birthright's a pretty big deal, as we saw earlier with Isaac. Uh, The birthright was for the oldest son, and it meant this. They received double the inheritance. They would get to carry on the family name. They would become the head of the household. And at the end of their father's life, they would receive a special blessing, which is kind of like a prophetic blessing that we're going to see uh, Jacob receive. And of course, in this case, uh, the one with the birthright is the one who gets to be the forefather of the Messiah. That's pretty cool, but Esau traded all of that for lunch. And the real underlying issue of this section is the attitudes, contrasting attitudes of Jacob and Esau towards the things of God. Jacob wants the blessing. He desires the blessing. He cares about spiritual things. Esau could care less about the things of God. The only thing he cares about is fulfilling his physical desires, and he despises the birthright and the blessing. The book of Hebrews tells us, that the root issue with Esau was that he was a godless man. And it says there in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, it says that we should see to it that none of us are like Esau. Now, what does that mean? What was Esau like? What is it exactly that we should avoid? First of all, I have three things. First of all, Esau was fleshly. He was carnal. He was fleshly. And that means this. He cares nothing at all about spiritual things. He is a carnal unregenerate man. He only cares about fulfilling his physical desires. David Barnhouse, he's an old-time preacher, he said this, multitudes of men spend more time shaving than on their souls, and multitudes of women spend more time to do their makeup than with the life of their eternal spirit. Men still to this day sell their birthrights for a mess of porridge. They choose time rather than eternity. They adhere to a system of priorities that leaves God out of their lives. And the point is this. We should not be like Esau. We should not be a carnal person like Esau who cares nothing about spiritual matters and eternity and your soul and the things of God. Secondly, Esau was not only carnal and fleshly, he was legalistic. Notice in verse 28, go back a few verses, notice this. It says, Isaac loved Esau because of what Esau did for him. Because Esau was a hunter. It says that, on the other hand, Rebekah loved Jacob, period. That's it. It doesn't give us a reason why Rebekah loved Jacob. She just loved him. And that's a picture of grace, right? This is the picture of grace. That God loves you, period. The legalistic person is the one who thinks that they got to be like Esau, they got to give God a reason to love them. They need to give him a reason to bless them. They need to put something on the table so that God will give them something in return. But the gospel message is this, that God loves you simply, period. That there's nothing you could even put on the table. God loves you, period. He blesses you, period. Not because you've earned it. If you're a person who, who like Esau, you have to give your Heavenly Father a reason to love you and bless you. That shows that you don't understand the message of the gospel. You don't understand grace. If you're a person who's always looking to, to give God a reason to bless you and accept you, you know, like, look, God, I read the whole book of Leviticus today. 
twice, you know? Did you notice that? Did you see it? Because it was really hard for me, you know? Now it's time to bless me because I've earned it. That's a form of works righteousness. That's a form of self-justification. But what you're failing to realize is that the message of the gospel, the message of grace, is that God doesn't love you because of something you can put on the table, because of something that you can do for him. He just loves you, period. Jacob and Esau are a picture of that. Esau was loved because of his performance. Jacob was just simply loved. Don't be an Esau. Don't be a legalistic person in your relationship with God. But be a Jacob. Be a person who knows how to graciously receive the grace of God and the love of God. And thirdly, not only was he fleshly and legalistic, but he despised his birthright. He did not value that incredible gift and inheritance which had been given to him because of his status as the child of Abraham. God's word tells us that through faith in Jesus, we have become, we can become children of God. That God adopts us into his family. And as children of God, there is a birthright associated with it. We become heirs of the kingdom. There is a treasury of riches that is our birthright by nature of us being in Christ. The birthright is laid out in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. We don't got it on the screen, but you can check it out if you got your Bible. It's Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 14. And what it says this, here's the birthright. Adoption into God's family, acceptance by God, redemption from sin and the slavery to sin, true and total forgiveness, the riches of God's grace, the revelation of the knowledge and mystery of God's will, and eternal inheritance, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and it goes on. And and this is all that's been promised to us in Christ. Esau despised his birthright. He says, who cares about that? What does that do for me right now? I'm hungry. I don't care about eternal life. I care about lunch, right? But how many people are there today who do such a similar thing? Right? They despise the birthright which has been purchased for them, which has been provided for them in Christ. They don't value this incredible gift. They disregard it and they give it up for temporal things. So make sure that none of us are like Esau, a man who was fleshly, a man who was legalistic, and a man who despised his birthright. So let's think over this story just one more time. This is a dysfunctional family, right? No one shines here right? No one looks good in this story. Who's the good guy in our story today? Who's the hero? Who's the guy we look up to? There are a few people who did okay, but they also did bad things too, right? We, we look at the end of the story, we see that the two guys who were the best in our story, they're still pretty bad, right? So we got Isaac, for example. Yeah, he reconciled with his brother. That's good. He prayed for his wife rather than running off with another woman. That's great, But he wasn't a good dad to his kids. And then he sold his wife to another guy. Then we got Jacob, and he's, you know, he does one good thing, one redemptive thing. He he cares about spiritual things. But he's a trickster. He's a deceiver. He's a conniver. So who's the hero in our story today? Well, it's not any of these people. And that's the point. Once again, we're reminded that God is the only good guy in this story. He's the only one who shines. He's the only one who doesn't disappoint us and let us down. In this chapter, we're reminded again that we cannot put our hope in men, but in God alone, right? He alone is perfect. He alone is true and just and righteous. And not only that, he's also gracious and merciful. 
He takes dysfunctional people from dysfunctional families and he cares for them and he transforms them and he saves them and he forgives them and he loves them and he gives them a future and a hope. And in this story too, once again, we see that God is glorious. God is good. We see that there is hope in him for people like you and me, both now and in eternity. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we give you praise this morning as we look upon the gospel once more. We give you praise this morning because, Lord, you are glorious. You are good. Lord, you are right and true and just and holy, and you are also gracious and merciful. Lord, we thank you that you take us, Lord, with all of our dysfunction, with all of our issues, Lord, and you redeem us. You pluck us out of the fire, and you transform our lives. You give us future and a hope. And we thank you for that, Lord. We praise you for that. We thank you for the hope of the gospel. We thank you for the inheritance we've received. Lord, help us not to be people like Esau, who despise the birthright, who are only fleshly, even who are legalistic, Lord. Lord, help us to be spiritual people. Help us to shine like you, by your grace, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.